Here's the question. How can we serve innovative voices, smart ideas, and the latest technology to improve brand identity, product consistency, and profitability in the print and packaging supply chain? Welcome to the ID Alliance Gamut Podcast, and I am your host, Jeff Collins. ID Alliance is a nonprofit association, and we serve the global supply chain for brands, print, and packaging with 12 offices located around the world. If you are interested in becoming a member of ID Alliance, you can join us by visiting our website at idalliance.org. On today's Gamut Podcast, we have a very special guest from Google, Marco Ugolini, and he works in color and print and packaging for Google. And Marco has an amazing story to tell, and you get to hear it today about his journey before the desktop revolution, before Photoshop, working with iconic photographers like Bruce Weber, clients like Calvin Klein and Ralph Lauren, as well as brand agencies and design agencies like Lander and Associates in San Francisco. So stay tuned. Marco's also a G7 expert, and he explains the value of G7 and gray balance and tonality and good contrast and the principles he learned early on in producing great photography and great images. Marco, thank you for joining us on the Gamut Podcast today. And before we get started, I just want to thank you and thank Google for allowing you to share your journey, your experience uh, within the industry. I mean, you were at the forefront at the beginning of the digital transformation of uh, print, design, and in particular photography and it's where you you got your start and you have worked for some amazing amazing iconic pioneers within uh, the industry on all sides all aspects we talk about the print supply chain but you have lived and breathed the print supply chain as well um, working again like I said for and I'll let you tell your story but uh, our listeners in are in for a treat uh, a historical treat so thank you again no problem thank you for the opportunity starting out before well we'll just kind of benchmark the 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 time and date stamp without uh, giving out our actual ages and we'll we'll talk about early days of photo before i can talk talk about my age (laughs) it's gonna be obvious yes i was um I was in my twenties in the eighties, uh, so okay. You know, I mean, there we go. Early thirties in my in the eighties, so uh, people can do the math. <laughs> That's funny. We're 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 definitely a little uh, bit older than the average Photoshop user nowadays. And uh, I guess to get started, why don't you tell us about uh, your journey, your career uh, before the desktop publishing revolution, the digital transformation in photography, before uh, Photoshop and Google became part of the English. Uh, lexicon. Yeah, Yeah, I started in the the late 70s. Late 1970s, I started Mm -hmm. uh, being interested in photography. That was a completely uh, new thing for me. Um, Nobody in my family or nobody um, very close to me um, uh, had a similar interest. Although I had seen photographs and I had known people who had a passion in photography, I I developed a, um, a passion of my own for photography. And then I, I met a local um, graphic artist uh, who was uh, very renowned, very successful in my um, 
part of Italy where I was at the time. Mm-hmm. I lived in Italy for the first 29 years of my life. Um, and this guy was, um, was a friend and, um, he was a good photographer. And one day he just, he was just holding a, a class in photography. And so I said to myself, man, uh, this is, <laughs> I want to go. <laughs> so I, yeah. I, I started, I started dabbling with photographs. Uh, I bought a very bad camera, um, but you know, it was enough to learn. And, uh, I took it from there. Um, and then four years later, I moved uh, to New York City. And um, by then, I had developed uh, skills in uh, in darkroom techniques. Mm-hmm. And um, I became a um, I I got a job in a, in a photo lab in Midtown Manhattan at Forty um, Sixth Street between Fifth and Sixth Avenue. And um, that that place was called uh, Lexington Labs. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but um, mm-hmm. it had it had some renown in those days. Um, the biggest client there was uh, Bruce Weber, and so I, I was with Lexington Labs and uh, <clears throat> working mainly for Bruce Weber. Actually, I I did black and white photography yeah. for myself and for Lexington Labs. Mm-hmm. I was uh, I was the person that did pretty much seventy eight percent of the black and white work there was another guy but he didn't do bruce weber i did everything by bruce weber including the film um he would come in charlie his uh, assistant would come in with bags of of 220 film and, I, and drop them in my lap and i had to go and develop them and make uh, contact sheets and mm-hmm. so forth and that printed stuff but it was pretty exciting because in those in those years i was fresh in new york i I was just um, there in this lab with, you know, gla- glamorous people. Really, Calvin Klein would come yeah. for for a party every once in a while or something. You know, Peter Beard was mm-hmm. one of our uh, of, of our photographers. Um, Peter Beard, uh, quite a quite a character. Um, I love his work. I love him as a person too. And um, so I, I was doing all this work, and it was uh, fantastic, really. Um, um, Bruce is a pleasure to work for. Um, always very, very, very uh, enthusiastic and uh, appreciative. Uh, great guy, great guy. So um, there I was, um, and also on the side doing work for myself. You know, my own photography, which was pretty much in the style of uh, street street photography and the tradition of uh, Dion Arbus, Robert Frank, Gary Winogrand, Grand, people like people people like that. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah, those years were were very formative for me. Um, I was there at Lexington Labs until about the 85, 86. I forget exactly when. And then I left. Uh, went. To, I went to work for another much higher level uh, place, Schneider Erdmann down in Cooper Square. That was a um, quite a fancy place. Right. Um, Quality wise, quite a step mm-hmm. up. One of their clients was Bruce Davison, um, but I was not working for him. I did some little work for Marianne Mark there, David Castorine, and names like that. I was very busy developing my own style and and developing my own aesthetic, really, mm-hmm. um, by um, doing this work, which was um, very 
Um, depend, it depended. Some of the work was easier. Some of the work was harder. The work for Bruce was of, in the middle. You know, yeah. some of the things I did for him were kind of hard because they were so underexposed, and so I had to learn some, some tricks. So I, I learned all these all these um, fundamentals. I knew nothing about print, of course. Right. <clears throat> other than print in the dark, I knew nothing about any other print, offset or anything. Mm-hmm. So um, what I did was just create photographs on paper. You know, on the, on a photosensitive paper. Mm-hmm. We're talking about silver highlight, right? Silver highlight, yeah. Yeah. It was um, Ilford um, Ilford Gallery paper, basically. I see. Most of the time, yeah. And uh, so I uh, I worked mainly, almost ex- exclusively with uh, Charlie Griffin, which which was uh, who was the uh, assistant for Bruce. And he was the one that came in with the film and picked up the prints and gave me directions from Bruce whenever there was a redo or something that needed to be changed a little bit here, a little bit there. But most of the time, it was uh, it was a very pleasant uh, work environment uh, with with Bruce. Always always very pleasant for me. Um, so what I what I developed in in, in those years was uh, was an eye for what looks right and for what looks wrong. I'm very demanding of myself. Uh, so whenever I saw something that wasn't right, I tended to see it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't have to have somebody else tell me. I knew it was wrong. Um, so sometimes I wasn't sure, but you know, I I I kind of um, solidified my uh, aesthetics. Yeah, my sense of judgment, visual judgment, you know. So those those years were very important in that way. So, and especially with uh, Schneider, Erdman, man, those guys were demanding. And not in a bad way. Not in a bad way. They, a- I, I love, I love the fact that they were so uh, important in my personal um, development as a, as a visual. Uh, Gary, um, Gary Schneider was particularly strict, but you know, um, in a good way. When you say strict, uh, what did you learn from that type of environment where you have this a much higher uh, sensor level of perfection? With Gary, you never get away with anything. <laughs> That's what I got from it. No shortcuts. And, you know, yeah. Right there, right there, and then I kind of felt you know all tense and uh, anxious. But you know, in retrospect, that was like. Um, you know, um, marine training. <laughs> <laughs> I think I understand. So uh, with with Gary, it was all about the fullest dynamic range. The blacks have to be clean. The whites have to be clean with just a, a hint of a tone. There's, there cannot be no, there cannot be any pure white in the print. It's got to mm-hmm. have a minimum of tone. All those principles I learned, and they are all directly later. In hindsight, they're all directly transmissible to print. Little area co- coverage and, and minimum dot. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. the same thing. Yeah. So what you've described to me is the essence of what we, uh, or the principles, I should say, of G7. We're looking for a high dynamic range, very, very good tonality from the minimum dot all the way to the darkest shadow. So we have great contrast throughout the tonal range. And this is the same concept for or principle for black and white photography as it is with G7 and four color reproduction. G7 is that, really. 
It's about G7 is about tonality, contrast, and and the very bones of what makes an image. And you know, bones is a great uh, analogy. Uh, it's uh, something that we say quite often that uh, gray balance and G7 uh, tonality and contrast is the backbone of good image reproduction. Yeah, so to, not to make a long, a long story too long, there was an interlude I, I, in 87, 88. I, I was with Schneider Erdman for about two years. Yeah. Um, and I left because my back was just killing me. <laughs> and, um, and so I couldn't stand being in the darkroom anymore. It's a, it's a kind of a, a lonely job. Uh, I had enough of it. Um, so I wanted to move on to something else. And for a while, I was doing what at the time in, in the late 80s was uh, was called desktop publishing, right? Um, but then when Photoshop started coming out, um, I, as a photographer, I, I looked at Photoshop and I went, oh, photography with computers, right? And um, I by then I had a, a Macintosh already. I was um, um, I was literate in computers. I'm talking about we're talking about the beginning of really of the computer uh, era as we know it these right. days. The, the late '80s is when I bought a Macintosh, um, uh, and um, so with uh, Photoshop, I started messing with it and saying what what it <clears throat> how it uh, dealt with the, with the principles of photography that I knew, and I was immediately smitten because this. This thing, this this program, and um, course as it was before before Photoshop 2.5, I believe there were not even layers. <laughs> oh, I remember those days we were working with the SciTech systems uh, to do essentially what uh, Photoshop was trying to do, and uh, within a few years uh, we were using Photoshop's on Mac, and those very expensive SciTech's workstations like Prisma uh, were no longer useful. Uh, not definitely not economical compared to buying a copy of Photoshop. This is something that in the darkroom I would have died for. <laughs> Immediately, I saw the potential. I, I, I knew that this program, this application, Photoshop, at the beginning of the 90s, would grow to be a monster in power and possibilities. I knew it. So, and I was right. <laughs> because right now, right now in this time and age, Photoshop is is, uh, is the best tool I know anyway. Um, um, yeah, I've heard about possible alternatives, but I'm not no, sure about them. Yeah, I'm going yeah. to study. I'm going to study the situation, but we'll see what, what happens with the other um, uh, applications that are trying to usurp <laughs> Photoshop. But um, I, I saw immediately what this thing was going to do for images and imaging. And I knew that the darkroom was gone, finished, um, that um, the future was uh, there in front of us. And I've um, always been very enthusiastic about uh, innovations in, uh, in computer technology such as this. You know, I'm also a, an avid uh, music enthusiast, you know, and I think that music has is, is, is never sounded better than today. You know, uh, in the sense of the sound of it, the sound, the way yes. the purity, purity of the sound, not so much the quality, maybe, but uh, the quality of what gets put out, except a few rare exceptions. But um, the quality of the sound is just fantastic. Right. And the same with the quality of the images. What we can do today with uh, with images is quite astounding. 
And Marco, what I find interesting about your career is that uh, your work in the early days with Photoshop, you were at Landor and Associates in San Francisco. And Landor and Associates, Walter Landor is an icon in design and advertising and branding uh, for some of the major retail brands like Coca-Cola and more. Uh, for our listeners, Google Landor and Associates or Landor San Francisco, Walter Landor. It's a quite an amazing history uh, within the graphic community communications industry and i would love if you could share your experiences at landor in the early days of photoshop and the digital transformation i started working with landor associates in 19 i left new york in 1994 mm-hmm. and um, and then i started working with landor associates in, in san francisco and immediately i was put to use uh, I, I was i was the, the photoshop guy there right and I was using 2.5, and it didn't have layers. It was really painful. <laughs> then it had layers. It was much better, so on and so forth. One thing that I banged my nose against against again and again was this um, um, mystery that yeah. um, that everybody was presenting me with a print. This. Um, Shrouded in mystery and uh, magic, right? You're talking about every, all the different. Everybody has their own special sauce on how they uh, reproduce. Tell you straight what it was, you know. Well, how is it done? Oh, let let us do it. You you don't you don't touch it. We do it. Yes. Okay. And what I soon enough I realized that what was coming back was not what we wanted. So. We're talking 95, 96, 97, 98. And uh, I was disappointed. I I said, that must be a better way to get results like I want them, or like we want them. Yeah. There's no way to predict here. You know, everybody does what they want. And uh, the, when things can come out darker, lighter, redder, bluer, uh, greener. And we have to make... Um, we had to find out a way to, to make this work. So in uh, 97, 98, I started hearing of uh, the color sync technology from Apple. So I started, um, I started attending the, the, the color sync user group uh, meetings in uh, Cupertino. Is, it, is this before Seabolt was launched? Or is C- yeah. Seabolt's gone? Yeah, this is... I think. I think. Yeah, it's, I think it's around talking, the same time. Yeah. Late, late 90s, right? When, yeah, late uh, 90s. Mm-hmm. In Cupertino. Yeah. So uh, people like uh, Bruce uh, Fraser was were there, and uh, you know talking directly about these um, the, these new technologies, you know. And Bruce was explaining how color management works. You know, that's the first time I heard about color management. Right. So late '90s, I started dabbling in it, and by by 2000 or 2000 or so, I was. I was pretty good at it, you know, with, with Bruce's help. Bruce was um, was not exactly a close friend, but he was friendly. And I was able to ask him questions and he would answer me. So that was quite a privilege, well, you know. Uh, you I know. always look back with fondness. Bruce Frazier. 
Yeah, you're talking uh, about Peter uh, was just uh, a lovely person. It's amazing listening to your story, Marco. You uh, mentioned working directly and collaborating with uh, people that, uh, for our listeners who don't know, these people that uh, Marco has worked with and uh, Bruce Fraser in particular, again, are pioneers in our industry. And uh, it is today what it is because of their contributions, including yours, Marco. I just want to let our listeners know uh, who Bruce Frazier is to pay homage. He uh, passed in 2006, and Bruce was an internationally renowned Photoshop trainer. He worked on the alpha and beta of uh, Photoshop and is, uh, again, a pioneer in the digital transformation and digital imaging and uh, photography around the world. So Bruce Frazier and uh, other people who at the time were um, in the forefront of the new um, ICC color management um, movement, if you want to call it. Um, so um, I started um, feeling more uh, more confident. Um, at a certain point, I was able to make um, color management uh, into the work at Landor, and um, we bought we bought a Spectrolino. <laughs> The noisiest machine yeah. on the planet. Very <laughs> noisy. Um, very slow. Um, but, you know, it was a start. And then we bought uh, a rip. We started making proofs. So um, whoever whoever starts out in ICC color management, you need patience and dedication. Okay? Sure. And, long, and long studying. You know, you have to study deep and slowly. Deep, at least I had to. And it will not come to you easy. You have to work for it. But the results are worth the effort. Absolutely. So from this far end where I am now, I look back and I see all those years as, um, as an investment in what I, in, in the skills that I have accumulated over the years, you know, which yeah. I think are, are useful to places like my current place of employment. And I am in charge of color and, and print at Google packaging. So um, that is that is something that fills me with pride that, uh, you know, I I was able to be of value to a company like Google. Wow. Very nice, uh, Marco. And I was I was listening. I was thinking about how someone like yourself coming from a high end uh, brand or ad agency creatives, you know, working with these top legendary uh, people and photographers and how you became so knowledgeable about the print side of the process. How did you start? Did you you know take a class? Uh, explain to our listeners your journey and on the print side? Well, I, um, I had to figure out things one step at a time. So I figured out um, the basics of print, right? By reading that book, I never, I never remember the, the title, this, that tiny book uh, where all the terms of printing are, um, are explained. I forget it. Oh, I- uh, yeah, your pocket pal. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that one. Everybody had it. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I, that was my first um, introduction to the mysteries of print, pretty much. Whenever I, d- I didn't know some, 
some terminology. I looked it up there. That's Remember, we didn't beginning. have yeah, we didn't have the Google search engine. No, back so, then, I mean, every pre-press to pour, I, you couldn't, you know, you you walk into a commercial printer and you probably find a copy of the Pocket Pal laying around somewhere. For, no, no doubt yeah, about pocket it. Pocket Pal was uh, was very important to me. Um, it was um, there, there were a few other books like that, but you know. I've always been self-taught in my life, and um, but I've, I've made up for that with a voracious appetite for for, for information. Um, and so, I, whenever I couldn't find an answer, I looked for it, and um, I usually found it. Um, so, bit by bit, by bit by bit, I understood the basics and uh, what makes um, print. I understood the, the concept of taking an image, making a screen, separating the colors, um, and angles, print angles, dot size. Um, so I uh, slowly, I understood that all of this was not a mysterious, um, mystical thing. It's a scientific it was, process. It was a very, it was a very practical, physical thing mm-hmm. that could be controlled. So that, that was my revelation in, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, really. I, I went through this transformation where from somebody who stayed, tried not, tried to let them do their job and I do mine, <clears throat> which was to make um, good looking images. Uh, I started saying, <clears throat> um, I, I have to take more responsibility for what I give them. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that will only make things better because um, they're the, many of them are like me. They don't know everything. Although they want to make it look like they know everything, they don't know everything, right? And right. so why not work together to make something good, right? So I, my, I took it as my responsibility to provide the best files that I was able to, uh, capable of providing, which is a principle that I apply to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <clears throat> that was my um, my angle. So from that point of view, I started. Um, I, I also had I, I also had a freelance career on the side. Um, I left Landor in 2003, and from 2003 to 2012, I was freelancing. <clears throat> so during that time, I was able to. Um, grow my my skills uh, by trying things out, finding better ways to do the same thing in the ways that are more economical and 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 solid. Um, so, for example, I, I learned how to make create my own ICC profiles for output mm-hmm. for any um, situation. I would I would get a client that uh, would print something at a local printer. I gave him a TC, I'm not, it was not a TC, but it was an <clears throat> ITA. ITA, yeah. Or, or an ECI 2000. Two. Yeah, 2002, ECI 2002, ITA 7.5. I would yeah. give that to them. I would say print them, print it with no color management. They don't put any changes into the file. And then I would uh, make a profile and I would uh, separate. And um, then I... I gave it to them and things came out great. (laughs) (laughs) 
so and, and then so that that demystified everything for me you know all of a sudden i saw this mysterious thing dissolve in front of me in the, in the sense that it was not mysterious anymore it was a, a thing it was it was like oh the light in the darkroom right the light the paper how does it work you know it works <laughs> you do it right it works um <clears throat> so there's um then I, I learned a few tricks on my own. I have a few ways of doing things that are not necessarily in, uh, in wide adoption, but um, there are things that I uh, use all the time. For example, there's one thing that I discovered a long time ago and I still use to this day is this thing that I call MEX-K separation. It's not exactly MEX-K the way, if you took it literally, it's not that. It's right. It's, it's a high black generation. <clears throat> so when you when you separate, and I've been doing this for now more than ten years. Every time I I create a, a custom profile, I don't do not even bother with with a regular normal GCR or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I no, I don't. I I separate so that CMY is always lower than K. Pretty much across the board. Right. You have a so, heavier black compared to your CMYK separations. Yeah. If you look at the, um, in Chromex, uh, color thing, for example, right? You look yeah. at the relative colorimetric um, um, net neutral curve, you will see you will see the, the CMY below a, a yeah. pretty much um, straight K. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why is that important? For two reasons. Because it, it does not affect the apparent um, uh, depth of the image. If an image is dark, there's a misconception that in, in order to give it visual weight, you have to add CMY. It's not true. There's a there's a point there's a point at which um, adding CMY adds trouble, but not visual depth. <laughs> Understood. Yeah. Yeah. So. A, a good balance of of a of a decent amount of CMY plus K gives you the same visual depth, the same um, L value, for example, as um, as a different uh, separation with less black and more CMY. But but what is the second advantage of that? Okay, you don't lose any any dynamic range. You really don't. It's hard to, for people to believe, but you don't lose dynamic range. Got it. Yeah. And, yeah. And the second thing is is a bonus that I have never been able to be to live without, which is uh, the print is more stable. Absolutely. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I mean, the quality is preserved. It, you can make moves in CMY and not affect neutrality as much as you would by having higher CMY and lower K. Exactly. Yeah. Obvious. So I was talking to Dave Hunter at Color 20 a few days ago and um, and other people there. And um, and I said, do you use um, anything other than um, high black generation i think it was david i I don't want to be wrong yeah that's i I think he said something to the effect of no it doesn't really make sense to use anything else i think he he said that so he validated what you said yeah yeah and 
so because you know I'm never I'm never 100 certain of that what I do is the best possible way. You know, I, I I try to keep that humility about what I do. You know, I don't I don't have all the answers, and and my my practical guidance is you don't necessarily have the best possible answer, and there might be something you can still learn. Obviously, so ask questions. You know, and. Ask questions of people you you, you appreciate and, uh, and are in your uh, high esteem, like Dave and and uh, and uh, Don Hutchison and uh, Ron Ellis, mm-hmm. with whom I have uh, I've started to connect. Um, uh, I, I haven't asked this question of Ron or, or Don, but um, this thing with Max K that I call Max K is something that I I. Mm, I don't see any reason not to um, use. I absolutely agree. And, you know, looking back on Photoshop and what you were talking about as far as doing, uh, um, you know, working in a dark room for Bruce Weber. And now we look today at solutions for color management and color separations. And it is, uh, we should be very proud of how far we've come. And sometimes I don't think we take the time to pause to reflect back on the uh, huge uh, advances that we've made within this sector as far as technology. We look at cloud solutions now, color management in the cloud, doing verification of brand colors uh, instantaneously from the press through the cloud to the brand or the buyer for approval now. And uh, you're talking about um, separating and, and, you know, black and black generation. And we have really smart algorithms and AI technology to do ink optimization for a variety of different conditions that makes sense. We were on a conversation. I had a conversation with Thorsten Braun and his wife, Barbara, on ColorLogic Solutions and some of the advances they have. It's absolutely amazing where, uh, how far we have come. Uh, I, I, at Code 20, I, I met Thorsten. He's a, he's a great guy, and um, his products are great. I, I use this software right now for... for um, uh, um, I use Colorant. Uh, Colorant, yeah. yeah. Yeah, one thing that I want to increase my um, expertise on is uh, device links. Because for things like what you are talking about, um, device links are, necess- are, are definitely the thing to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Marco. And I want to shift gears a little bit based on a conversation that I had with another major brand, Under Armour, on our podcast. Uh, we discussed how they handle their digital assets? Do they use a pre-media company or do they communicate and handle uh, the transfer of the artwork to the print service provider directly? And if they do, do they convert and prepare the files and convert them to Grackle 2013 and they do the separations themselves? Or do they allow the print service provider to handle that? A lot of them do. And to some degree, they have issues because there's issues with communication. And I was wondering what your particular policy is when you transfer and uh, provide your artwork to your print service service providers yeah we we don't release anything that is not fully separated to basically the the standard grackle 2013 crpc6 at this point Mm -hmm. um so it it's fully separated with my custom profile 
And um, because I, I created the, the MASK version of Gracom 2013 using Copra, um, things go out of here into the vendor's hands and it's good to go into the into the plate making. <laughs> and, I understand, yeah. Um, yeah, there's really nothing to do there other than possibly, I don't know, um, laying out things on the form. That's it. Um, and what value does you know targeting a G seven data set bring to uh, what you're doing? Where, where's the where's the ROI and uh, uh, going that direction versus something that's an alternative? Well, um, there's a complication in the work that um, I do currently, which is um, lamination. Right, lamination uh, puts a kink in the works, um, but G seven still works. Uh, you 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 target you go for G7 targeted before lamination to hit the solids and the overprints, and then uh, once you got the, um, the the primaries and the overprints in, within the targeted um, uh, um, tolerance, um, then you laminate and then you curve that, and then you have a G7 workflow. It's not perfectly column managed because on top of that, you should do really a, um, a color space custom CRPC, right? right. But uh, things are difficult when you deal with many vendors and uh, of varying quality yeah. and capability. And so one, one thing about scaling a work that is so massive, like what we do here, um, is that you have to be carefully um, gauging and dialing in all the variables and being that you have to go for what is feasible. Exactly. I would love yeah. to do color space. I would love impossible. to do color space. The color space require, requires a level of proficiency and reliability and stability that we are still working towards. So, Got it. Um, yeah. Yeah, you you have to be you have to be. That's one flaw that I see. Honestly, I love I love Idea Alliance, and, uh, and then, you know I appreciate what you guys are doing. But um, I I think that many people are just uh, they show a, a a qualification on the wall, but then you ask them to do it, and they seem to fumble. It, absolutely, and like any uh, quality management program that printers uh, have uh, a lot of time there's cultural change uh, that hasn't taken place to be able to sustain the level of quality that they could do when they had uh, originally implemented it and of course there's companies that have uh, adopted a, a full cultural change as far as quality is concerned adopting lean programs and things like that and they are very very successful and some of them are multi-billion dollar uh, packaging suppliers. Now, you yourself are you're a certified G seven expert. What uh, yes. um, w- what value did that course bring, and what light bulbs went on, or did uh, it was you know really a con- from your background? It's really a confirmation process when we talk about those core values of tonality and gray balance. Yeah. I joined Google after I had worked um, at Nest for. Um, you know, Tony Fidel's company. Yeah, uh, yes. Between 2012 and 2017, I was there. And there, things were smaller, right? 
So I was not using G7 at all. But then I come to Google in November of 2017, and um, one of the things that I immediately saw was that <laughs> my nest ways, I'm not going to work here. <laughs> I no longer have just a little bitty thing that can be done on one press, always the same press, always at the same vendor. You know? Yeah. Um, I have to think bigger, and um, I, I have to think of something that um, guarantees quality, but is, uh, as they say, in, in these marketing terms, scalable, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So massively scale, scalable, because we're talking about, you know, big uh, print runs. So things things have to be um, um, have to be uh, managed and uh, prepared cautiously and in ways that um, don't require uh, custom treatment for each location, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, which is something that I did at Nest, but I can't do here. So everybody gets the same files, right? But then they have to play the game by the rules. Now we're now we're playing major league. <laughs> so in November of 2017, when I joined, I took a quick look and I said, "Okay, this is what I'll do." The first thing that has to happen is that I have to become a G7 expert, <laughs> which I was not at the time. So they said yes to their credit, <clears throat> and I went to um, LA to Don Hutchison's uh, training in mm -hmm. in December of 2017. I became a, an expert in January. I put in my exam and I passed. So, um, and then from then on, um, I, I tried to think and because, you know, you know, when, when you, when you become certified, you don't become an expert instantly, right? You still have to figure out, okay, now I got this tool in my hand. What do I, what do I do with it? it puts <laughs> right? you in, yeah. It puts you in the saddle and gets you in the saddle. Yeah. But you got to ride. You, you got to keep riding the uh, horse from by from yourself. From the left, from the right, from the bottom, from the top, and you go, okay, how does this work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that, fine. Don said all those interesting things, but now how do I really make it work? So I had to figure out all the procedures, all the steps, all the things that I was going to ask uh, the vendors to do to make this thing a reality, right? And so I, okay, so one of the things that one of the there are some bottom lines here that cannot be changed. Like, for example, everybody has to do 300, 300 lines per inch. I'm not talking about pixels per inch. I'm talking about lines per inch. Yeah, LPI. Very, very high uh, uh, line screen fre frequency. Why? Well, because in the highlights, you don't get uh, the, the peppery um, effect yeah. of, of, of 175 or 150. And, and it's smoother if you do it right. It's smoother. Mm -hmm. So, and then there are other rules like um, slowly, um, all images have to done, be done in 16 bits. I'm a strong believer in 16 bits. Unlike other people I could mention, but I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a long feud with somebody whose name is widely known, but, um, and he's a big enemy of 16 bits and uh, color we, will, we will mention but, his name. Yeah, yeah no, I, yeah, I get it. Yeah. You, can guess, you can guess who it is, but, um, so I'm a big believer in 16 bits because when it comes to shadows and gradients, there's nothing like it. 
Yeah. You work in smooth transition. It is smooth. Even More when levels. you convert to uh, from 16 to 8, there's a there's an um, uh, burnt in dither that does miracles. You know, this mm-hmm. it's really the best the best uh, shadows the smoothest best shadows and gradients you can you can you can produce. But you have to start in 16 bits. So those things, right? Uh, certain rules on the vendor side, like. You, when you say that you you, know, you can hit a 1% dot at 300 lines per inch, the dot has to be on the plate. Not only on the plate, it has to be on the page, on the on the sheet. Mm-hmm. Okay? It can't disappear. So all these things. Um, so one thing about all this, about G7, about color management, that cannot work uh, unless you do something about it, um, it's not technical. Of course, the, there are the technical things, but one thing is not technical. One thing is um, human. Management has to be on your side. The vendor's management has to be on your side. They have to commit to doing what it takes to provide, to to, to give you the results that um, that the technology requires. Without doing that, the results will be touch and go, chance. You know, because if if the management doesn't tell the people on the printing floor, this is not a joke. You have to do this. It's not left to your decision whether you do this or not. You do it. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And as a print service provider, we want to, you know, expand our capabilities. And if a a buyer or brand puts in front of us a challenge uh, and we can meet that challenge, um, we, we gain your trust and we gain your business and we become a partner uh, because we're serving your needs is as simple as that. And uh, we often find print service providers don't measure and monitor their quality capability and they end up getting themselves into relationships where they can't deliver the customer's expectations. Exactly. One, one main requirement uh, that the management has to guarantee uh, is that the quality is consistent, meaning no matter who's who's on press, the results don't vary by more than the acceptable tolerances. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it cannot be up to shift number one to be the star and then shift number two and number three. Usually there's three shifts a day uh, to to be the, the the ones that can't cut it. You know, Let because me, yeah, go ahead. You never know. You never know um, uh, when the prints that you need will be done by shifts two or three, right? You don't want to be. Oh, I want it only done by shift number one. That's I remember those days. Yeah. So, yeah. so we, we, they have to be uh, the the people in the in the in the pre press room and the people on, in the print room <clears throat> have to be able to. People in the pre press room have to be able to make plates that are. That the, whose dots are the dots that should be, not not plus or minus four, plus or minus one maybe. So, 
looking at so looking at vendors, your print service providers. What are some of the attributes that you look for before you consider providing uh, work or, or, or engaging in a partnership? You, you have to use good materials, starting with the inks. Um, they have to be ISO twelve six four seven two. I at this point I can't accept anything other than. Um, and then the the in the pre-press room and the, on the printing floor have to be qualified. The facility has to be G7 master color space. At this point, I don't accept anything lower than that. Not only they have to be G7 master color space, but they have to have their internal uh, people, preferably two people in the print room who are G7 certified experts. Understood. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they have to be the people who do the work. They, they cannot hire somebody from outside and get that thing that they put on the wall that says, just have a master call space. It cannot be that. I understood. You need to. We I, want to see a just have a master call space qualification that is achieved by your own means. That is really important. And then we want management to be on our side. Yep. Saying, saying you guarantee the the stability, the repeatability, the consistency that we need. I I want to put in place a situation where all the vendors are capable. I'm trying to make things go from earlier ways to a manufacturing model, where things are done uh, according to manufacturing procedures. Mm-hmm. Some people might hear that and go, oh, my God, that's awful. They're taking the humanity out of it. No, not really. (laughs) Because because the results will be beautiful. How how is that taking out the humanity? You know what I mean? When something, my responsibility, if I had to encapsulate my responsibility here, it's it's to make things look beautiful. Okay? Two, my, my design, the designers I work with, they want the things that they work on so hard to make them look beautiful, to look beautiful on the page, on the sheet. Mm-hmm. And it's my job to make that happen. The manufacturing model, in my opinion, and I'm open to discussion, but it seems to me kind of a um, an obvious thing that the manufacturing model will do that. Marco, you're preaching in the choir. I wholeheartedly agree with that statement. And if we look at artists, uh, the famous artists, and they create artwork that's beautiful, um, it's perennial. But what people think, I think, is a misperception is that, uh, you know, because of the word creative and artist, they think that uh, there's no process involved. And in fact, it's absolutely a process involved, especially if you look at if we look at the education history of the masters, there's a process very similar to manufacturing processes that are involved. And I remember watching a documentary on PBS not too long ago uh, about 
three sculptors and they were discussing their processes that uh, they used to develop their art. And I saw the, you know, the consistency in the way that they approached each one of their projects. It was what it was very similar to watching and working with, you know, engineers uh, that are in, you know, prototyping and uh, the process of developing a new product or invention. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with implementing processes that make the product consistent to meet the needs of the uh, customer. Let the customer be creative. You deliver and to deliver consistently, you need to take a manufacturing approach to it is basically what I'm hearing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know what you mean because I, I am that way about my work, my, my own photography. I have a body of photography and I am absolutely uh, committed to the best possible visual quality for my work because because I want my work to look beautiful. Okay, that, and and the more I know about the technical side of it, the more my work will look the way I want it. Mm-hmm. So you know when when people it's a romantic it's a romantic mix, misconception to say that technique takes away the humanity. It's so wrong. It's not true. I, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer in, 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 in the power of technology to, to create beauty. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing uh, that um, can convince me that getting more stability in printing um, detracts from the, what, the craft? I mean, people who are crafts, craftsmen, the, the best craftsmen in the manufacturing um, process are, are, are a pleasure to behold. You look at these people and you go, my God, they're good. <laughs> right? Right. Absolutely. You know, the standards are a backstop. They're guides to continually uh, better the manufacturing process. That's the craftsmanship part of manufacturing is continually improving the value stream. And then we get into the area uh, where automation is a bad word. When we look at improvement of processes and solutions, you know, we have technology that is fully automated. And a lot of the time people perceive that as a job killer. And uh, companies I've seen that uh, take a different approach to the word automation and a word of process improvement where they're looking at it as, the you know, what's the value stream and taking out uh, uh, non-value add uh, steps and touch points through automation or better technology doesn't necessarily mean that uh, we're, you know, killing jobs. What it means is that we're able to use people in a value add capacity. And because of that, the business will improve, sales will improve, the company grows, the business grows. So it's a win across the board for everyone. Earlier times, right before the car came up, came around, right? Mm-hmm. Lower Manhattan was a was a pigsty, yeah, uh, covered in tons of uh, horse dung every day, incredible amounts of disease and uh, rodents and infestations. And, you know, you can't uh, you can't keep horses around just because, you know, it's more natural going the way of the car made sense then. So I'm saying that things that 
opposing opposing what is um, a move forward in the name of values or perceived values of the past doesn't make sense. And in print, I don't know what this will mean for print. I don't. I cannot really. I I, I don't know what it will look like in I don't know fifteen years. I have no idea what kind of processes will be in place. Mm-hmm. It, I, it's it's hard to think that what we have today will last much longer. Uh, most definitely, you know, we're already starting to see uh, some of that uh, come to life with smaller sensors, smaller spectrophotometers, uh, spectrophotometers possibly in mobile phones and that type of thing. And uh, ICC Max, uh, which is a, a new flavor of uh uh, and in a huge improvement to the current ICC standard. And if we look back on what you were talking about, when we look at uh, manually exposing film and all the steps, you know, on a stripping table uh, that we took, and you compare that to what you're talking about with Photoshop. Well, due, due to my background, <clears throat> once in a while, I can't, I can't help look back at the old days and go, my God, what am I, what I'm doing today here in one hour? I know. It took me a couple of days to do in the old days. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and not only, That's... not only I'm saving time, but the quality is so much better. It's exactly like I want it. And it will be exactly like I want it every time I print in the darkroom. One thing that in the darkroom I was faced with every time was, for example, I make a print today for um, um, I don't know, some photographer. And yeah. then the same photographer comes back a month from now. Do you think I will remember exactly how I did it? <laughs> Unless I, I have detailed notes for every little print. I know. Well, especially in a, in a dark room. I mean, the, you know, we think about variables now. I mean, look at all the variables back then. Uh, is that, I need you know, prints what? that required six minutes of exposure. Yeah. And if your bulbs a little, I mean, what, what about the lifetime, you know, your, your bulb starts to diminish. You have to check to make exactly. sure that everything the bulb, is, the bulb is dimmer, right? Yeah. The light is different. The color of the light is different, which means that the perceived radiation, light radiation perceived by the scent, by the sensitive materials is different. Therefore you cannot say expose for two and a half minutes or five minutes and you'll get your print. Mm-hmm. No, because the bulb, maybe went from 40 watts down to 30. Yeah. And it's redder. Therefore, it's not as blue as it would be required by the paper to sensitize. You know, kind of stuff like that. And people complain, you know, and people complain today that they have to calibrate their monitors. I mean, oh, you know, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Cry me a river. Yeah. Calibrate your monitor every once in a while, please. It'll help us yeah. out. <laughs> And, and there are ways to do things now uh, in the Photoshop, for example, that um, um, if you have a background like I do, they're so intuitive, right? You, you know exactly what to do. You know, um, preserve, the, preserve a certain range of tones, but emphasize a certain range of tones in the other, on the other end, right? Mm-hmm. And you can isolate things and, for example, or... You, you um, understand how to create better grayscales from color, right? 
because you have all these tools that give you incredible options, right? So um, as a black and white photographer, which I I still consider myself a black and white photographer, um, I look at this smorgasbord of of fantastic tools as 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 a godsend. You know, I'm not one of those people who say, oh, there's nothing like film. <laughs> no, I don't, you don't want to that. be that uh, no. stubborn. <laughs> you don't yeah. want to be called boomer or any of the. Uh, well, <laughs> the I, I am. I am a. I am of the baby boom generation. But, yeah, you know, me too. When it, comes, when it comes to innovation, I'm completely with it. A hundred percent. Yeah. I've never been. I've never been a, a, a nostalgic. Oh, the old days. No. Not me. Um, I've always moved forward, and um, that's what um, that's what has propelled me all these years. Uh, this this and uh, endless for me. It's an endless search for better better ways to do things in my field of expertise, which is imaging. Really, now it's print and color, which is you know strange. A, a person like me, trained in black and white, has become a color expert, but <laughs> it's. Um, it's not that strange, actually, because the, the fundamentals of color um, have a lot to do with tonality and contrast, which are the, the backbone of G7. Where Don defines it by saying that um, G7 brings RGB to CMYK. It's a good way to put it. And because in RGB, in RGB yeah. equal numbers in R, G, and B give you perfect neutrality, right? Yes. So G7 brings more or less perfect neutrality to CMYK. There you go. So, well put. Using the same core principles, which is find something that gives you the same contrast and and the needed neutrality. Right? And right. then you right. share the appearance. It doesn't matter where you print. More, There's something in common between all these prints. Although the color might not be there. Of course, if you want color besides shared neutral appearance to match then you have to do other things. You have to deal with uh, differences in gamut, for example. You cannot expect the same results on an uncoated stock that you get from a glossy stock. But um, the appearance will be the same. Things will not look dramatically lighter or darker, dramatically more contrasty or less contrasty. They will all share those traits well said, Marco, and we have been on for quite a while, and thank you so much. It was a joy to listen to your journey and your insights, and we so appreciate it. And thank you for joining us on the Gamut Podcast. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Gamut Podcast. If you have ideas, suggestions, or would like to join us or even sponsor future podcasts, simply email me at jcollins at idealliance.org. That's J-C-O-L-L-I-N-S at idealliance.org. Take care and have a productive day. 